Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. Uh, warm welcome, especially if you're visiting with us today. And as Mike said, we're in the middle of a series on the gospel according to Jonah. A series in which we've been trying to become better readers of God's big book at the same time we're getting to know this little book. And to that end, our time each week has been spent looking at a principle of how to read the Bible better, and then putting that principle to work in the book of Jonah. So far, if you haven't been here, we've looked at a principle called stop and listen. That being a a better reader starts with slowing down and allowing a book like Jonah, allowing the Bible to speak for itself. We looked at a principle called staying on the line, that that to read the Bible rightly requires a faithfulness to understand the Bible rightly, and then a faithfulness to submit ourselves to the Bible in everything. And then a principle called traveling instructions, that if we're going to understand what the Bible means for us in the present, we have to first understand what it meant for those it was written to in the past. And then last week, we looked at a principle called asking good questions and saw that asking good questions helps us understand what an author is saying in a passage that we might then understand what an author is saying through a passage, that we might ultimately be transformed by the passage. If you missed any of those, you can catch up online or and there are inserts in, on the back table that you can grab. But today we're going to build on that, go one step further with a principle called understanding genre. Understanding genre. Because if we're going to understand what an author is saying in the text, part of that is being sensitive to how the author has chosen to speak through the text. And after we get into this principle, understanding genre, we're going to get into our passage beginning in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And I'm going to read this up front from Jonah 1, 17 to chapter 2, verse 3. Again, Jonah 1, 17 to chapter 2, verse 3. Then we'll pray, look at this principle, and finally come back to this passage on the other end. Here's what it says, though. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, through to chapter 2, verse 3. This is God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we 
follow Jonah into the flood of the sea, as we follow him into the belly of the fish and the belly of that grave he calls Sheol. I pray that we would see him for for who he was. Not who he should have been or who he could have been, but for who he was, bent and broken. That through his prayer, we would hear the, the crookedness of his heart and see there, sobering as it is, the crookedness of our hearts as well. That against the backdrop of what is crooked, your grace would shine all the greater. That perhaps even what is crooked might by your grace be made straight again. And I pray that it would be so in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. Well, I was on a camping trip not too long ago with a friend, and we had taken the kids to give our wives a break. Catherine was pregnant again. His wife had just given birth. So it was just us and the woods and our little posse of underaged children, which meant that my friend and I were all too happy when bedtime rolled around. Problem is, is that though we knew it was bedtime, the two-year-old that he brought on this trip didn't. And so he spent the better part of an hour or two going back and forth to the tent trying to get his child to go to sleep. And as he did so, I sat by the fire and the sun sank and darkness set And I was waiting for him to return. Which explains my absolute terror, my absolute fear, when in the darkness up to the campfire came the voice of a woman. Now, you got to understand, this was the middle of the week. This was the middle of the woods. We were there. There was nobody around. And I almost jumped out of my skin and ran for the outhouse for shelter. Turns out, it was my friend's phone. It was Siri. And I had just missed half of the conversation. So she was simply saying that she couldn't find it. I didn't know what she was talking about. I couldn't understand what this woman was looking for around my campsite. But turns out it was just Siri, which explains why the voice sounded somewhat familiar. But again, I had missed half the conversation. I had missed all the cues to tell me what this was. Hey, Siri, could you? All I heard was, I'm having trouble finding it. Huh? So missing the cues, I turned that voice into something that it wasn't. I turned it into an invasion of my privacy. When it was really just Siri asking how she could help. Now, camping, that didn't turn out so bad. I only almost fell off my chair. Running to the outhouse wouldn't have been so bad. But missing the cues when it comes to the Bible 
puts us in a much more dangerous position. Doesn't it? Because it puts us in danger of misunderstanding what's being said and missing out on what's being offered. Which is why this principle on understanding genre is so important. Because if we're going to understand what some author in the Bible is saying, part of that is being sensitive to how that author has chosen to say it and picking up on the cues of how we're supposed to understand it. And we do this in the rest of life, don't we? Like reading a newspaper, we just instinctively know. We notice that, that the obituaries look quite different than the advertisements, thank God. We notice this just by the way they're written. We, we catch the cues. But for some reason, we end up forgetting this oftentimes when we come to the Bible. So today's just a reminder, really at the heart of it, to remember to see the cues that the authors will tell you often how to take what they're saying so that you don't misunderstand it and miss out on what's being offered. And let me just begin by asking you, if you have that insert, you could take it out and follow it along as we walk through it. Let me just begin with the question, what is genre? Because this isn't really a word that we use every day even though it's a good word to know. What is genre? Well, genre is just a fancy French word that refers to a family or type of literature. And actually, there's genres in art and music and movies too. But when reading the Bible, our focus is on literature, so we can talk about a genre as a family of literature, distinguished by family characteristics, like similarities in style in form, in content. Like how fairy tales always today start with once upon a time and end happily ever after. That's how you know that you're reading a fairy tale or at least how a fairy tale is being told in a modern fairy tale fashion. And understanding genre is important when it comes to the Bible because understanding the genre of a particular passage helps us understand what an author is saying through it. And to pick up on what we said last week, it leads us, it helps lead us to where the author wants to take us. If we miss the cues, we risk losing our way. And that's because to communicate effectively An author writes in a particular way, within a a particular genre, to accomplish in order to achieve particular purposes. Which is why if you're writing a shopping list, you don't write a poem. Unless for some reason you're cruel and unusual. And it's why on Valentine's Day, you don't usually write a shopping list. Unless you're just unusual. And the authors of the Bible knew this, that that to communicate effectively, they had to write in particular ways, within particular genres, in particular generic conventions to achieve particular purposes. And for us on this side, not as the writers, but as the readers, if we're going to understand the Bible rightly, we're going to have to be sensitive not only to what an author says, but to how the author has chose to say it. 
And if you look up in the corner of that insert, it's a bit like trying to understand what to do with different types of berries. Trying to understand the different genres of the Bible is like trying to understand different types of berries. Because some are best for food, and others are good for eating. Food, not eating. Others are good for clothes. But then still others are good for medicine. Though not all are good for everything. So you eat some, you end up dead. Right? You try to take others for medicine, they don't work. You try to dye clothes with still others, and your t-shirt's still white. So knowing the difference between them, being able to distinguish them, whether it's berries or Bible genres, allows you to use them appropriately. Which raises the question, what are the genres of the Bible? And how do you tell them apart? Well, there's quite a few, and we're not going to get into all of them. And within even some books of the Bible, there's actually multiple genres represented. We're going to see that even in Jonah. But let me just say that one of the most important ways of telling them apart is by how each genre uses language to express its message. You sort of lay it out on a spectrum, and the spectrum runs from genres that are more on the shopping list side of things with principles and logic and propositions to genres on the poetry side of things with word pictures and imagery and imagination. So you have things like instructions on the shopping list side, which tend to be more concrete. You could think of the the Ten Commandments. Not real flowery, just really direct. And then there's a category called apocalyptic on the other side, which at times even borders on the bizarre, if you're reading it wrong especially. And you could think here of the book of Revelation. But what about the book of Jonah? We can't get into everything else right now. We'll touch on it, right, as we walk through the Bible in different ways at different times. But what about the book of Jonah? What genre or genres make up the book of Jonah? And it's somewhat of a trick question because there's actually a genre called prophecy. And you might think Jonah is part of that family of literature because Jonah is found among the prophets. But that's actually more because Jonah is about a prophet than that it shares any, any family traits with the other prophetic books. It really has nothing to do with Jonah's literary characteristics. When you actually open up the book of Jonah, what do you find? Well, you find two genres that, that make up this book that are, in fact, historical narrative and what we're going to look at today from chapter 2, Hebrew poetry. Narrative and poetry. The middle of this insert, if you unfold it, is all about understanding narrative. That it mainly centers on the development of complex characters known by what they do and what they say, so that the story of Jonah centers on this guy and his God. As one pastor put it, that the story is about a God who said go, a prophet who said no, 
To which God replied, oh? Because it's really a story about two complex characters, a guy named Jonah and his God. And when it comes to the narrative sections of this book, there's some pretty stock questions that you can ask. You can add them to the questions we looked at last week. Some pretty stock questions you can ask to better understand what an author is saying through it, to get you under the text. And I actually encourage you this week to take some time to do just that by turning back to the narrative of chapter 1 or even looking ahead to the narrative of chapter 3 and using as a guide these questions on the inside of that insert. But for the rest of our time today, this morning, I want to focus our attention on understanding poetry. Because that's what this prayer is in in Jonah chapter 2. It's poetry. And in capturing the poetry of this prayer, the author was trying to accomplish a certain purpose. See, it brings the narrative of chapter 1. That's all about movement from one scene to another, from the word of the Lord to the flight of Jonah, to his boarding of the ship and God's sending of the storm, to the sailors throwing overboard their goods and eventually throwing overboard this guy. The purpose of the poetry is that it brings this narrative to a screeching halt. Not because in this case it's outside the narrative, like it's something the author is saying apart from the story. That happens at different times in the Bible. But because in this case, it's in fact how the author brings us deeper in. So let's take a moment to talk about understanding poetry. And this is on the back of that insert. Understanding poetry. And what you've got to understand is that the poetry of the Bible shares some typical literary characteristics just like narratives do. First, it has concise, concentrated expressions of thought. A lot of substance is packed in to a very little space on the page. So you can think of a proverb and uh, how much is packed into just a few words, right? So as a reader, you're, you're meant to slow down and focus on this concise, concentrated expression of thought. Second, it has emotional language, speaking from the heart, often to the heart. And better than can be done with a shopping list. So the poetry of Song of Songs. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's emotional language meant to elicit an emotional reaction. It's meant to engage the heart from the heart to the heart. Third, though, it has visual language using creative imagery and vivid metaphors. So the psalmist at one point says, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for God. And lastly, the poetry of the Old Testament shares poetic forms, like this thing called Hebrew parallelism, which the term's not super important, but understanding what it is 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 sort of important. The point is this, that, that in the Bible, the poetry isn't so much about how one line rhymes with another, 
You know, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. As much as how one line is developed in the next, how one line relates to another. So the first suggestion there under that about understanding poetry is to pay attention to how the thought of one line is either restated, expanded, or contrasted in the next. So we shouldn't take the psalmist's words about the deer panting for water and then our panting for God as two separate statements, as if he's really trying to make a statement on the need of, of, of these mammals to stay hydrated. He's not. It's a theological statement about our need for the Creator, not the deer's need for water. The first line is simply used to set up the second. Further, remember, though, that the imagery and emotion are used to say something about the world we live in or the God who made it. They're an attempt to describe what's often otherwise indescribable, to put into words something bigger than the words themselves. So to stop with the words doesn't do them justice. If poetry is someone speaking from the heart to the heart, we haven't understood it until we've been moved in the heart. And lastly, as far as suggestions for understanding poetry, listen to the tone of a poem to understand what is going on in a poet's heart and then the emotion being elicited by the author. So let's ask then, what are we to make of the poetry of Jonah 2? Why is it here? And through it, what is the author doing? We're actually going to take two weeks to, to look at this this poem, this prayer in chapter 2. So, so we don't need to cover everything, but I want to I at least think together about this question. Why is this prayer here? And to a degree, I've already given an answer, at least one level of an answer, that, that it's here to slow down the narrative. But why? Why not just keep going? Why not just jump from Jonah being swallowed by the fish to Jonah then being vomited out. After all, that's what the story is about at some level. How God's prophet can't outrun God's call. He jumps ship. God gives him a return ticket. Right back to where he started. So why even bother with this prayer in chapter 2? Why bother slowing down a narrative that's going to pick up right where it left off? Many critical scholars, in fact, asking this very question, have answered it by suggesting that originally this story did just that, that this prayer was a later addition by a later hand that, that in fact, interrupts the narrative, which is why it doesn't quite fit, they say. So they throw it out. But more careful scholarship notes that we don't really have any basis for doing that. That whether it fits or not, it seems to be part of the original story. We don't have any copies of Jonah where this isn't a part of it. 
that this prayer must be kept where it is. So it must have been there to begin with, so it must serve an original purpose. And the purpose I want to suggest to you is this, that without this prayer in chapter 2 and the prayer that we'll eventually hear in chapter 4, without this poem, the story of Jonah is only about God's heart for the godless. But bringing us into the belly of the fish to hear what we never otherwise would have heard all of a sudden makes this not just a story about God's heart for the godless, but about the heart of God's godless prophet. Emmett and I were on a canoe trip this week. We paddled 42 miles. Not bad for a nine-year-old, right? Not bad. I didn't know we were going that far. But as good as Emmett was doing paddling, and it was the first time in life that we were paddling together, he's just like every other nine-year-old when it comes to noticing things around him. So he's looking always in the wrong place. I say, look at that bridge. Where? Right there. Look at that bird. Where? Well, not in the water, up in the sky. Look at that eagle. Swoop right over our heads. Where? It just took your lunch. So that the entire trip, just to get him to appreciate all that we were seeing, I had to physically like grab his face and point it in the direction I wanted him to look. That's what the author is doing with this poem. This is the author taking our faces in his hand and forcing us to look where he wants us to look. Switching genres is the author doing the very same thing. Not to say that the author made this up and put the words in Jonah's mouth, but that this is why the author bothered including these words to begin with. Why he included the prayer and captured it as a poem. See, the author is slowing us down and arresting our attention and giving us a glimpse into Jonah's heart, who up to now we've only known from his actions. Ever notice that? That up to now we've only seen what Jonah's done. But narrative is about complex characters known both by what they say as much as what they do. And yet to this point, Jonah has only spoken as answers to other people's questions, which is really just as good as asking a teenager how school was. Fine. What do you do? Nothing. Okay. But now the curtain is pulled back. Because even though it seems maybe like nothing's going on in there, there's actually a lot going on. Now the the curtain is pulled back and we're given a window into Jonah's soul. That's what poetry is. That's what prayer is. They are us at our most vulnerable. 
because they are us being most us. Like the prayer of the poet Robbie Burns. Just hear this with what he was going through in life. You can, you can even imagine the situation not even knowing the situation. He says, Oh, thou great being, what thou art surpasses me to know. Yet sure I am that known to thee are all thy works below. Thy creature here before thee stands all wretched and distressed. Yet sure those ills that wring my soul obey thy high behest. Sure thou, Almighty, canst not act from cruelty or wrath. O free my weary eyes from tears or close them fast in death. It's a window into his soul. A glimpse into his heart. Prayers and poems are us at our most vulnerable because they are us being most us. So you want to know someone? Just a tangential application? Take the opportunity to pray with them. You want to know your spouse, your kids, your parents? Take the opportunity to pray with them. And then don't ever minimize when someone shares with you the songs or psalms or sonnets that they've written, whether about God or even especially to God. You want to know someone, pray with them. You want a window into their soul, pray with them. But be ready if you do that our prayers, when we are us being most us, it's then that we often prove to be most bent. And I hope you know that before you engage others. And I hope they know that about you before they ever engage in that direction. That in our prayers, us being most us is when we prove to be most bent. And it doesn't mean we should stop praying. But it really brings out the brokenness. And here's what I mean, because as much as this prayer in Jonah chapter 2 provides a picture into Jonah's soul, it's not a pretty one. It's not a pretty one. And this is where critical scholars have been more honest with the text than others have. See, they say it doesn't fit, and they're right. It doesn't fit, not because it was added later, or just because it's a song of thanksgiving when Jonah's still in the belly of the whale, but because first, Jonah fails to acknowledge his own fault, and because second, he therefore thinks his goodness has earned him God's grace. First, he fails to acknowledge his fault. The most he'll say in verse 4 is that he was driven away from God's sight. No reason given. But he wasn't driven away. He ran. That's the first thing that we're told of him in chapter 1. 
that he fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, that he paid the fare to go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But here at his most vulnerable, all he says is that he was driven away. Not so. Rather, he was the one who fled. This inability, or at least unwillingness, though, to admit his own fault leads to an even more egregious error. His thinking that his goodness is what earned him God's grace. And while Jonah seems ready to admit that God didn't have to save him, he still connects the fact that God saved him with his own prior goodness. I'm not saying we don't respond to grace. We do. But we best be ready to see that by the time we respond, grace is already there to be responded to. Yet listen to what Jonah says in verse 2. And listen to that Hebrew parallelism. Remember, all, all of this is after God sent the fish without a word from Jonah. All of this is after three days of silence where, where he didn't so much as make a sound. But his own account is that, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. God appointed a fish when Jonah intended to sink to the bottom of the sea with his arms crossed. And he says in verse 3, For you cast me into the deep. Jonah, not so. Only in the remotest sense that God holds the whole world in his hands. Yes, they were his waves and his billows, but not because he singled you out for them, but because those waves and billows were waiting there for everyone who flees. You were cast by the hands of the sailors who you told to throw you overboard because you wouldn't jump yourself. More because you wouldn't turn back to the one you should have. Because you didn't want to face the God you fled from. And yet that God who sent the storm and commands the waves, it was that God who in an unbelievable and completely undeserved mercy turned to you long before you turned back to Him who would eventually do the same for this world He loved so much. in the sending of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Failing to see His own fault in the matter. Even more, thinking His own goodness earned Him God's grace. We'll get into the weeds more in the next week as we look at this prayer again, but let me at least encourage you in three ways. To get out your pen. To get with a friend 
and to get ready to amend how you see grace. First, let me encourage you to get out your pen. And I don't mean right now, but I do mean even today, before the busyness of the week sets in tomorrow. And record just for yourself and no one else a prayer to God about your hopes and your desires, your fears and your failures, and about where your relationship stands with your Creator. Perhaps even in the form of a poem. There's something to that. The force of the rhythm and the rhyme to take you into those creeks and crevices of your own heart. But whether it is or not in the form of a poem, don't make it for anybody else's eyes but yours. Because we have enough trouble, even when it's just for us, not whitewashing what it is we're going through or struggling with or facing or fleeing from. So take some time to pray, pen in hand. Because it's a window into your heart. And sometimes in the middle of all the the soccer games and all the television shows and all the class assignments and work assignments and time we waste surfing the web... We don't even bother opening up the shades of our souls. Get out your pen. Second, let me encourage you to get with a friend, with your closest friend, and muster up the courage to ask them to tell you where it is that you seem to be failing the most. Where it is you're, you're failing to admit your own faults when that relationship with God seems to be falling short. Jonah didn't have that luxury, the belly of the fish, but you do. To ask where you're falling, failing, where you're failing to trust or, or failing to follow. And, and if it's hunky-dory right now, that's fine. Let's just wait. The time will come when you have a chance to to circle back to this, when, when you're fleeing again in your own way. But if you're there now, if something's bothering you, if something with your relationship with God or your place here on earth is bothering you, I encourage you to get with a friend because the problem at the end of the day is never that God isn't turning to us. It's that we turned away from Him. It's never that grace isn't there waiting for us. It's that we're making decisions to turn in the other direction. And this means that you might have to share some of what you're going through in hopes of uncovering where it is that you're fleeing from God's presence. Because as much as we'd like to think that It's him driving us away, right? Those are Jonah's words. That doesn't happen until there's no more life left in our lungs. Even if we're in the fish at the bottom of the sea. Till death, we're the ones running from him. So get out your pen, get with a friend, and lastly, get ready to amend how you see grace. Because there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. 
there's a little bit of Jonah, if not a whale of Jonah in all of us. Who no matter how much grace we see, we always seem to see it as God turning to us because we first turned to Him. When the story of the Bible beginning to end is in fact a story very much in the opposite direction. That God turns even before we turn away and makes our turning back possible even as His grace gives us something to turn back to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear in Jonah's prayer the, the, the crookedness of his heart and, and see there the crookedness of our hearts as well, I pray that we would see against that backdrop your grace all the more. That our crookedness might by your grace be made straight again. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.